0: Hello, and welcome to The Drabblecast, episode 116. The Drabblecast is a weekly flash fiction audio podcast magazine that brings strange stories by strange authors to strange listeners, such as yourself. I'm your host, Norm Sherman. We've got a great show for you this week, beginning with a little news off of the beaten path. We bring you Drabble News. Thanks to listener Chris Quartetti for sending this in. This is a special Drabble News here, people. It combines all the perfect elements that make good Drabble News. Science run amok, Mother Nature going apeshit with natural selection, cool bugs, badass parasites, and zombies. Mm. From Fort Worth, Texas. Researchers in Texas are trying an unusual approach to combat fire ants by deploying parasitic flies that turn the pesky and economically costly insects into zombies whose heads fall off. The researchers are trying a tiny forid fly, a native to a region of South America where the fire ants originated. Fire ants in their home region are kept under control by as many as 23 forid species. The way it works. The flies lay eggs inside the fire ants, and then the eggs hatch into maggots, and the maggots eat away at the pest's tiny brain. Very disturbing. We go now to beloved patriarch, renowned obstetrician, and Drabble News chief field correspondent Cliff Huxtable. Doctor Huxtable, why exactly are these fire ants a threat? Well, you see, yo, know, the ants get together, you see, and they bite the baby cows and the people and the roadie, and they cost the Texas economy a billion dollars, you see, and it itches, you see, and I'm doing the thing that you do when you scratch and then you subdue the flea fly. Yeah, I, I, okay, I, I think I see what you're saying. So these forward fly larvae, they just go right after the ant's brain and dig right in. Well, you see what you gotta do, Theo. If you're a maggot, you gotta go eat the brain like a pudding pop. And then the ant just starts wandering around like a zombie until its head falls off and a new baby fly emerges, you see. Oh, oh, I, I think I do see. That's truly horrible and awesome. Thank you, Dr. Huxtable. Oh, it's no problem, you You're a good boy. A <clears throat> Four forward species have already been introduced in the state since 1999. They don't attack native ants or other species and have been introduced in other Gulf Coast states before. Yada, yada, yada. Yeah, right. Clearly, this will somehow wind up ending the entire human race. And you heard it here first, people, on Drabble News. How about a Drabble story? Drabbles are stories exactly 100 words. Send yours into Drabblecast at yahoo.com. This week's Drabble comes to us from Sonny Trailer, and it's called Tax Form Zero-G. Sonny is employed as a longshoreman on the Lake Erie port of Cleveland. He enjoys writing short fiction in his spare time, and he might attempt a novel one day if he gets over his fear of commitment. Gravity began to flicker and die like an old fluorescent light bulb. Those intermittent disturbances caused the Earth's crust to heave and fall as if it were trying to breathe. Tsunamis, like mountain ranges, erupted out of the frothing oceans and ravaged the continents. Far inland, stunned survivors tethered themselves to trees or telephone poles, but Bart Wilson of Omaha, Nebraska, who was scheduled to be audited by the IRS in a few hours, strolled outside in his bathrobe while sipping an ice-cold beer. The earth fell away from him, and he toasted to freedom before freezing solid. Gravity won't save you this time, Chrysler. Our feature story this week is called It's All in the Knowing by Michael Trim. Michael's been published in many fine venues, including Blackgate, PostScripts, Weird Tales, and Realms of Fantasy. Thanks to the cruelty of the gods, he lives in a small town outside of Austin, Texas, so he'll be one of the first to go whenever the zombie ants start taking over. He keeps a sporadic journal, and we'll have that linked in our show notes if you want to keep up with him and his work. So without further ado, It's All in the Knowing by Michael Trim. So I woke up this morning knowing everything. I mean, every damn thing. Like how Einstein was way off in his calculations and Hawking's been chasing a pipe dream for years. I knew that there was no life on other worlds. Sorry, Charlie, that's the brakes. We really were the result of the biggest chain of coincidences ever to hit the universe. Full body slam, baby, and the cosmos is still reeling. But SETI never saw that coming. Omniscience in one easy lesson, folks. Amazing what a liberal arts degree is worth these days. So I sat there, all this useless information running through my brain. It seemed pointless to go to work, especially since I knew there was a wreck on I-35 that would stack traffic up for miles, making me late again, leaving me wide open for a nice little ass-chewing from the boss, who was already pissed because his wife hasn't been putting out lately. Ah, screw it. Habit is a bitch. Then an hour sitting in traffic, listening to the death rattle of my old mercury, which I knew would die a pitiful huffing death in 30.7 miles, beyond the help of even the most diligent and honest mechanic. Bye-bye, little merc. Enjoy the auto graveyard afterlife. Then I got to the office an hour and a half late, and instead of heading straight for Mangrove's office, I stopped at his secretary's desk, Kelly Lester. A soft-spoken, unassuming young girl with lovely sparkling green eyes, and a smile that seemed fresh-born each time she used it. I fell in love with her the day she started here, and I convinced myself she'd never have anything to do with me the day after. Of course, I was not all-knowing at the time. I walked to her desk, bent down, and said, I love your poetry. Don't worry. That haircut looks great on you. Try not to blame your father. He was going through a hard time, and your mother was too sick to help out. As her history wrote itself upon me, an instantaneous biography, I wanted to cry, laugh, scream, sing, all of the emotions of one young woman's life imprinting themselves on my own psyche in a hormonal rush towards resolution. I choked in the clutch. I could only point to Mangrove's office, my finger shaking drunkenly. He's on the phone she mouthed, as if he could hear her through his door, his supervisorial radar somehow able to detect superfluous speech. I nodded gravely, smiled, and went through his door unannounced. Mangrove blustered into the mouthpiece, his cheeks so engorged with blood that the flush threatened to leak out of his pores and weep down his cheeks, war paint for the dying. And dying he was, each febrile thump of his heartbeat bringing him that much closer to the massive coronary he would have later this afternoon. I knew that his wife was on the line, not just telling him she was leaving him, but delighting in the details of her several affairs. You are a heartless, clueless bastard. You've surfed your way into this position by riding other people's waves. I knew that his wife was giving him the play-by-play of her latest infidelity, while he railed and ranted and tried to pretend that he hadn't known about her nature long ago but I suddenly realized it. He looked up briefly, saw me standing there, and again that shock of total knowing ran through me. I saw a man whose every day was a denial of the failure he believed himself to be, even while the circumstances of his life rebuked him over and over. I saw him visiting his doctor, denying the prognosis, carrying on. And I knew, with a pain I felt in my own heart, that when the end came later in the day, it would be a relief. He stared at me, his eyes watery and bloodshot, and I turned and left the office, easing the door shut behind me. Kelly sat in a state of near shock, waiting for the anvil of Mangrove's Fury to drop on her head. It didn't matter that I'd run into the office without clearance, didn't matter that she couldn't have stopped me. She only knew that this was a job she needed, and as far as she could tell, I had just lost it for her. The universe shifted. Omniscience adjusted itself to a new set of dictums. Kelly was afraid now, and the avenues that were open to me earlier, the paths I might have taken to catch her attention, crumbled and dissipated. I glimpsed one tiny footpath, its existence threatened by every passing second. I leaned toward her and said, When last I saw the wandering bird, its voice, so wise, cried out, unheard. Kelly's eyes, dough bright with fear, widened even further. I'd taken her from one shock to another. What are you... what? I was aware of time. No, time lines swirling around me. I wanted to leave before Mangrove shook the office with his impotent fury. I needed to get Kelly out of the office before the boss collapsed later in the afternoon in an apoplexy of spit and dander. And I needed... No, I wanted. I yearned to be with her today. And tomorrow. And... Meet me for lunch. Please. I'll be at the sub shop around the corner and we'll talk, okay? I want to talk to you about your poetry and your life and whatever comes into your mind. I really love the way your mind works, and I say it, damn you, no matter how sappy it sounds. I really think I love you, too. I know everything. Every damn thing. So why was I surprised when she turned pale, placed a delicate hand over her mouth, and then ran, ran away? Now I'm sitting on a flaking bench at the bus stop across from work. I've been sitting here playing God. Good way to waste time, if you ask me. But it's really depressing. Let's cure cancer. I know how. I know what will work, despite the current philosophies of treatment. Not chemo, not radiation, not the new saviors with their DNA panaceas, not the old mystics with their ancient remedies. It's much simpler than all that. It's so simple, in fact, that I would have understood the process even before my grand epiphany had someone outlined it to me. And then I see deaths, a thousand for each person cured, a turn in the destiny of mankind, a loss of focus that might destroy the world. I was able to stumble to the trash can by the bus stop before I threw up. See, it's like this. Ultimate knowledge and a fiver will get you a cup of overpriced latte at the nearest Starbucks. I know everything, and it's an ongoing process, too. I feel the tickle of new information constantly, like an ear infection, but deeper in my head. But I can't tell the future. There is no future. There are blurred, shifting paths that change with each new discovery, each bit of intelligence from the front lines. The future wars with itself constantly. So, I've been sitting here watching battles. What if I... And then the pseudo-futures open up in my head, and the good intentions are belittled by the mockeries of the possible outcomes. The smallest, most insignificant change that I might introduce into the world brings calamity and consequence again and again. I envision the advent of holographic television, and I see a path that leads to world's end. Time. We all forget about it, or we try to find ways to gain it, or we try to beat it, or get around it, or ignore it completely. But it exists. Not as a concept, but as a control mechanism. And I'm sitting here, knowing I should do something, and fearing my actions at the same time. I am not God. I'm not able to make these decisions. The immortal words, why me, come to mind. And I don't have a good comeback. The glass doors of our offices swing open, and Kelly comes out. Mangrove has given her a loud, let everyone in the world hear diatribe about the sanctity of his offices while his heart screamed in misery, and she's crying to herself, watching her fragile little world shatter around her. I have one chance now, one shaky branch of the eternity tree, and I don't want to play God anymore. I'd rather play Romeo. I can't see the future. I can only glean bits of insight from the myriad possibilities afforded me. But I do know one thing. I do know this. Given the chance, I can make one woman happy. I can produce children and I can keep them happy and fed and informed and loved. And once I've done that, once I've understood what factors come together in the getting of wisdom, the loss of my own fears and doubts and prejudices, I will be free to take the next step. I will be able to understand what playing God truly entails. Kelly, I say. And the rest is history. For now. Well, that was our story. Hope you enjoyed it. Socrates said, I know nothing except for the fact of my ignorance. And that's a very profound and significant quote, because it tells us that despite what most of us think of him, Socrates really was a stupid idiot. Let's hit some listener feedback from stories in the past few weeks. In episode 111, we ran Greg Van Eekout's story, Frequent Flyer Miles, about the woman traveling airports to find her kidnapped daughter. This one got a thumbs up from most people, as one of the more reflective stories we've done in a while. Phenopath said, I like the sparse emotional quality of the story. The woman was compelled to search for her daughter, yet it was no longer a raw, manic search, and the woman's emotions were more muted. The tone of the story conveyed that, but it did not make complete sense until the end. Kevin Anderson said, I really like the story. One of the more somber DC tales in recent memory. Back when we had an economy, I used to travel a lot, and spend a fair amount of time in airports, just people-watching. Everybody has a story—sad, heartbreaking, surreal— and I'd try to imagine what the people I was spying on would tell me if I had enough nerve to ask. This is the kind of story that makes me think about those nameless faces streaming through jetways, their details immediately fading as the terminal herds them towards their destination. It always seems like everyone is in such a hurry, searching for something or someone. It's grave to imagine a person searching without any hope of finding what they've lost but she still searches, because in the end, the search is all she has, all she is, and all she will ever be. This one will be with me for a while. My stalker, Norma Sherman, said, I really liked the story and the reading, although the back and forth between Cat Rambo and Norm was a bit awkward because of the different sound qualities. Once I lost someone who was the closest person to me in my life, and I searched for his face in crowds, cities, and airports when I was there, because he was always on the road. Eventually that pounding heartbeat feeling when I saw a back of the head similar to his went away, and life is back to normal. But I can't imagine losing a child. This is a really sad one. Indeed it was. And we rode that boo-hoo train of tragedy right into the next week, with The Guardian by Michael Anthony. Beth Peters said, "'Riveting. I love post-apocalypse stories. Putting Lord of the Flies in this context made for awesome adventure. Maybe a little bit too much sneaking around in dark shops in the first half. It lagged a bit as a result, but then it really took off in the second half. Reminded me of Mel Gibson's Apocalyptico, but not god-awful.'" Jonathan C. G. said, "'I loved this story when I heard it on Pseudopod, and it's great to see it get its due here as well. Michael is a solid writer.'" One of the things I enjoyed about the tale is the little bits of humanity that poke through all that ugly. Just a glimpse of some of that childhood innocence by the dead boy leader is enough to encourage him to do the right thing and let the girl go. I think that it's the most solid example of hope in this tale. And this is how T. Baker's parakeet found the episode. During the intro, he was happy and chirping quietly to himself. During the story, he was rigid, head cocked slightly to one side, not looking at me or anything else in particular. I chirped at him. No response. He was intent on listening. When the outro came, he immediately fluffed up, started preening himself, and talking to me. Nuff said. Indeed, the bird's the word. Well hey, if you enjoyed this week's story, or you didn't, join our forums and get in the discussion, or you can just comment from our website, www.drabblecast.org. You can also find a slew of other good stuff there, an mp3 feed of the show, if that's the file format your player prefers, a whole other podcast with even weirder stories called Drabblecast B-Sides a merchandise section where you can buy Drabblecast t-shirts and old archived CDs, and most importantly, a donate button. If you'd like to help support us so we can pay our authors, you can either do so on an ad hoc basis with the Donate Once button, or you can subscribe automatically for only five bucks a month. Or if you're broke or just plain miserly, you can blog about us or write a review on iTunes. It's all good. Congrats to this week's TwitFic winner, Rahas Masala, for another great flying squid story. Find us and friend us on Twitter for our weekly 100-character TwitFic stories, and submit your own on the appropriate section of our forums, or send them into drabblecast@yahoo.com. at yahoo.com. Well, hey, that's it for this week. The Drabblecast is produced under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivatives License, which means you can't change it, you can't sell it, but you can share it all you like. We'll see you next week. Until then, our staff is made up of co-editors Kendall Marchman, Luke Coddington, and yours truly, Norm Sherman, reminding you that we love your poetry.